Can Be New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Welcome to church. Uh, we get to continue in the story, but it's coming to a close, actually. We've got this weekend and then next, and that will be the end of this eight-month series that has surveyed the narrative storyline of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so the question is, well, what's coming up next? So I'm here to tell you what's coming up next. We are going to uh, build upon the theme of the story by now from September through the holiday season dealing with Christ in you, the rest of the story. Now that we've looked at the way that God has worked throughout Scripture to be able to build a people, to redeem humanity, to restore all things underneath his lordship, we're now asking the questions, how does that intersect our lives? How does the fact that Christ came, died, buried, resurrected, and the Holy Spirit is with us. How do those things influence our lives? So we're going to be looking at the power of salvation, Holy Spirit baptism, water baptism, involvement in church family. Um, it's going to be an exciting series. It's going to be led by a team of our teaching pastors here, and we're excited for the next upcoming season that will get us through the holiday. So I encourage you, uh, continue to come, continue to invite your friends. The Taco Feed is an excellent place to engage, re-engage in life here at New Life, as there are many wonderful opportunities for engagement uh, throughout the fall season. So that's what we're going to be heading into in the fall. If you have any more questions, feel free uh, to send myself or any one of the pastors an email or talk to us. We want to make sure that you guys are informed. Well, as we look into um, one of these last messages in the story, I've got to ask this question. What would you write to someone you loved if you knew you were going to die? What kind of things would you say to make sure that the person, people you loved carried on well in your absence, that they honored your memory, that they sustained your vision. What would you do? Uh, the book of 2 Timothy is that one of those unique opportunities in Scripture because in it we see the Apostle Paul, one of the f- primary evangelists in the first century. His life is now drawing to a close. He can sense that the end is near. And in his final days, he writes a letter to his good friend and protege, Timothy, encouraging him in the faith and helping him know what is so important in order to finish well. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to head to the book of 2 Timothy. It's towards the end. It's a small little book towards the end of the New Testament. First uh, and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy. If you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. Of course, if you've got it on your tablet or device, you're welcome to open it up there. As you do so, let's pray. Get into the text. Lord Jesus, thank you that in you there is always hope. Help us, Jesus, to finish well. In your name we pray. Amen. A little bit of context about Paul and Timothy. Uh, They met when Paul was on a missionary journey, um, and Timothy was saved underneath Paul's ministry, and uh, he actually gets invited along to help Paul and his missionary crew, and Timothy grows up as a young leader and eventually gets given charge of a church in a major metropolitan area where Paul had spent a great deal of time preaching and teaching and laying a foundation for a new church. Timothy then gets to be there as the man on the ground, and this really stresses him out, not just because ministry is hard, but because if you read between the lines, and even if you read some of the lines themselves, you'll notice that Timothy he suffered from a great deal of stress and anxiety that actually had 
physical effects upon him. He seemed to be a man who wasn't prone to godly confrontation. And so as um, false teachings or other things that needed to be addressed in his church arose, he would back down from the fight. And so Paul wrote to this young man, Timothy, and encouraged his leadership several times. He says a couple of things in 1 Timothy 5. He says, I want you to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Sounds like Timothy suffered from stress ulcers. He, uh, he, uh, well, I mean, ministry's hard, but um, then another place he exhorts Timothy. He says, God did not give you a spirit of fear. Now, that's a good clue for you to know what Timothy was experiencing. He says, he hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so sensing that Paul's end, his final days are approaching, he sends one last letter to his brother, his son in the faith, Timothy, and he encourages him in three areas, the gospel, suffering, and his calling. So that's what we're going to look at today, the gospel, suffering, and his calling. So the gospel is how Paul opens this letter to Timothy. If you pick it up in 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, it begins like this. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in his suffering, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who, verse 9, has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, I love this, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What's Paul saying? He's saying, Timothy, you know that I am in prison, suffering in chains for the sake of the gospel. Don't be ashamed. Don't back down. Says, instead, rather pursue more diligently the fact that now in Jesus Christ, salvation is possible, that the gospel is embodied in Christ, and that he has given us, rather than death and damnation, light and immortality. This is the message that saturated Paul. And he's telling Timothy, Timothy, look, I am in prison because I keep preaching this message. Even if you end up there too, don't back down. Endure suffering well by the grace that God is going to give you. He goes on to say in verse 12, or excuse me, in verse 11, he says, I have been appointed as a preacher and an apostle to this gospel, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he, God, is able to guard until the day, the day of his coming, what has been entrusted to me. So here, now follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So, now that Paul is facing death, he says, I'm not ashamed. You know why? Because I have made a deposit, and God is powerful enough to guard that which I've entrusted to him, and I'm not going to lose out. Even if I sacrifice my very life, I'm not going to lose out because God will keep that which I've given him until the day in which he returns. And so, Timothy, you too stand strong in the gospel, remain strong in the face of suffering through the grace given to you by Jesus Christ and the power that is yours 
through the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all working together to keep Timothy rooted in the gospel. So, in a word, what Paul is shouting to Timothy in this letter is remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Don't forsake it. Don't deny it. Don't dilute it. Remember it. Abide in it. Stay with it. See, the gospel is the good news that we're no longer subject to sin and death, but that through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, he's broken that, and now we have life and immortality. And furthermore, this is nothing that we have earned or nothing that we can do to receive. Rather, we receive it as a free gift that in faith in what Jesus Christ has done, this now comes to us, not because we're good enough, not because we try hard enough, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, the perfect finished work in which when we have faith, now becomes ours. But this offends people. This is bothersome to people, even people within the church. I have a tendency to think that a lot of us are kind of, um, how do you say it, maybe um, closet legalists, in the sense that, oh, we say that we're saved by grace, but really we function as though it really depends upon our good work. So there's a couple of objections to the gospel I think we have. The first is that the gospel is really foreign to people who are works-based people, right? I mean, if, if think about all of your school years, right? Why did your parents tell you to go to college? Because if you've got a degree and you've got talent and you've got merit, then you'll get paid better because society values people who have merit, and so we're told that you need to work hard, study hard, excel above and beyond your peers, rise to the top of the heap so that you'll be identified, told that you're good, get paid accordingly, and there is success. So here in America especially, we value people who work very, very hard. Now, let's leave aside to say obviously working very hard is good, but we've got to make sure our motivations are true. Let me tell you, when I was a kid... I got identified early on, like kindergarten or first grade, as being one of those talented and gifted kids. And this really screwed me up. Because here's what it did. I began to work, not for the sake of learning, not for the sake of the thing itself, but for the praise that would come as a result of my good success. So here's what I did. I began to very, even as a young child, recognize that I am now working for the approval of other people. And so here's what would happen. Rather than trying really hard or finding a challenge and failing, because failure represented not just that I didn't do a good job, that I wasn't good. Do you see the distinction? Okay. And so I would begin to self-select out of experiences, opportunities, athletics, things that I knew that I wouldn't be good at going into it because I needed the assurance ahead of time that I was going to succeed because success meant identity. Praise meant this is who I am. And when we get in that place, that's a works-based system. And we oftentimes treat God that way. Well, God loves me when I'm good, but he doesn't like me when I'm bad. And the gospel says, God loves you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And when you stand in Jesus Jesus is your mediator. Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is your great defender. And it is his perfect work that secures our good standing before God, not our imperfect work. So the gospel is foreign to works-based people because they still believe that it has to be about them somehow otherwise. The next thing is that um, the gospel, it, it can't actually be free. 
Now, if you're not a Christian here, and by the way, welcome, we love you, God bless you, um, if the gospel can't really be free, right? Because we're skeptical. If anybody comes up to you and says, I've got a free offer for you, you know that at some point on the line, you're going to end up paying for it. Somebody's going to end up paying for it. What do we say? There's no such thing as a free lunch. And the reality is, you're right. The gospel isn't free. It's free to you, but it was purchased at the cost of the life of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is the good news that God recognized that there's nothing that we could do. The debt that we had incurred because of our sin was so great, there is nothing that we could do to drag ourselves out of that hole. No amount of good work, no amount of giving, no amount of niceness would able to do. It doesn't matter how much organic dog food you feed your pet, no matter how many kids you have on honor roll, no matter how many things that you try to do that are acceptable in the eyes of society, none of those things grant you any traction with God. And so what does God do? Rather than asking us to meet us at his level, he stoops down, adopts our humanity, lives the perfect life, dies the sinless death, and in his death adopts upon him the entire sin of all the world so that having paid for it, With his own blood, he now extends the gift of being accepted, loved, redeemed, adopted to us for free. Not cheap, free. And we receive it as a gift. And if we ever try to repay this gift, it means we don't understand grace. Because there's nothing we can do to get out of that hole. If we ever try to pretend that we can earn our way back into God's favor, as opposed to simply pleading upon the work of Jesus Christ, it means we don't understand grace. So you're right, the gospel isn't actually free. It costs Jesus dearly. But you had better believe it comes free to you. And that any attempt to work your way into God's good grace is only an indication that you don't believe the gospel. The last thing is this, is that the gospel offends our sense of justice. Uh, Imagine for a moment, some people reject uh, the notion of grace because people who have received it sometimes have a tendency to abuse it. Have you ever wondered how many times God is going to forgive you for the same sin? You know, so imagine you've sinned and you feel real bad about it. So you ask for forgiveness. And you get really worked up. There's tears. There's, I'll never do this again. It, It all sounds real genuine. And it is. And then, lo and behold, guess what happens? You do the same thing again. So you're kind of, well, do I go through that whole emotional rigmarole of confession? And, and, well, you do. So there's round two. And eventually, you've got to ask yourself, how many trips on this merry-go-round of misery am I going to take before God cuts me off? Like, is there a limit up there in heaven that I don't know about, that I only hit when God says, no? He says, Sorry. You've punched all your tickets. I've got nothing left for you. It's obvious that you're not really sorry. Have you ever wondered this? Like imagine from a, from a, from a, you know, from a human point of view, say Ben Clifton and I, he, he wants to take me out to coffee, and so he invites me down to Starbucks, and I say, sure, I'll be there Tuesdays at 9. I sh- he's there Tuesday at 9. I'm not. I show up later. Oh, buddy, I'm so sorry I forgot. We make plans next Tuesday. Same thing. I forget, don't come. How many times is Ben going to keep showing up to Starbucks waiting for me knowing that I'm not going to be there? Once, <laughs> right? Burn me once, fine. Burn me twice, shame on me, right? So from a human point of view, we don't do well with people who continue to repetitively make the same mistakes twice because we feel like, oh yeah, you say you're sorry, but you're not because if you really were sorry, you'd change. 
And so we adopt that same, we transfer that same kind of human level of thinking to God, and we're like, well, I can't go to God asking for forgiveness for the very same thing that I asked for forgiveness yesterday or a week ago, because I'm obviously in the cycle. So the, answer, so the question is, how many times will God forgive you, or will God ever stop forgiving you if you ask for forgiveness? The short answer is no. You know Why? Because it doesn't have anything to do with your confession. You see, there's no confession that's strong enough in and of itself. There's no amount of tears and emotional hand-wringing and and remorse that will convince God that you're worthy of forgiveness. So it has much less to do with the strength of your apology and everything to do with the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect finished work that remains perfect, remains sufficient for everything that you do. I want to be careful here because the Bible doesn't call us simply to get saved. The Bible also calls us to live holy lives, okay? So we're not talking cheap grace. Do whatever you want. God will always forgive you, okay? What I am saying is this. I am saying that you need to look past whatever the behavior is that you're constantly asking forgiveness for to the root issue that lies underneath it. Let me give you an example. Timothy Keller, who's a pastor out on the East Coast, he saw this from him. He says, imagine for a moment that you constantly lie. But you don't lie in order to like make money. You lie in order to improve your standing, your reputation with other people. You lie in order to save face. You lie in order to uh, schmooze people. You will never stop lying until you address the root cause of what's prompting the lie, which is what? Your addiction to the approval of others. That's the false idol of which the lying is a symptom. Do you guys get that? So oftentimes, like pornography is the same thing. Oh, I've looked at porn again, and so you confess. Well, what's the root symptom that's driving that? That's what you've got to get to, not simply the symptoms of which the idol expresses itself. Does that make sense? So when you do the hard and holy work of asking the Holy Spirit, bring conviction into my life so that I'm recognizing what the root idol, the false God that I'm trying to worship, the addiction of others or finding pleasure in things that I shouldn't instead of Jesus, then you begin to make really traction in your life because now you're confessing the root sin, not simply the symptom. Does that make sense? So how does this happen? The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, brings conviction. You know how the Holy Spirit brings conviction? Oftentimes through community. You can't be a Christian by yourself, friends. You need other people around you, and you need to cultivate healthy, typically gender-specific relationships in which people, men to men and women to women, can look into each other's lives and say, this is where your blind spot is. Because you know what the truth about a blind spot is, is you can't see it. So you need someone else to point it out. And the humility that's required to listen to someone say, this is a weakness, you need to repent. That, friends, is a true friend. Cultivate those relationships. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you through scripture, through worship, and through good, godly friends who are willing to point out your weaknesses so that you can confess that which keeps you bound. Because here's the reality. 1 John 1, 7 through 9 still remains in effect. We are not saved because we're sorry. We're saved because of what Jesus Christ has done. He says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another 
And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Watch what's happening. If we walk in the light, daily exposure of secret sin. There is no secret sin that will benefit you. You only do well to confess them immediately. It is killing you from the inside out. Because if you don't walk in the light, as he is in the light, you don't have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus doesn't cleanse you from all sin. So if you do so, then the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So if you're willing to confess and bring that which you've done to light, Jesus' blood is there constantly to do that. Now let me acknowledge for a moment that there are people who are abusers, and in their confession there is no hint or any trace of genuine sincerity. But imagine for a moment that in your case there is the slightest, most imperfect sense of true guilt and remorse and desire to change. God meets you every single time because his blood covers you from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But... If we confess, acknowledge, repent, forsake our sins, he is faithful every single time, every single time, to do what? And just to forgive us our sins. I told you that people don't like grace because it offends our sense of justice. Why should God forgive you for the same thing a hundred times in a row? Because Jesus paid for it. Because Jesus paid for it. So God can look at the work, the price that Christ has paid and said that I can still be a just God and forgive you even again and again. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, this is my favorite part, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, grace doesn't simply give us the freedom to know, oh, we're not underneath the guilt and shame of sin. It gives us also the freedom to live in a holy life because when, you, when, you, when your affections come around to loving Jesus so dearly that sinning and bringing shame to his name causes you such, you, why would you do something that would hurt the one that you love so much? The power of lasting sobriety, healing, wholeness, freedom from sin doesn't come from willpower, doesn't come from fear. It comes from being so enamored by the love of Jesus that returning to the same pattern of sin is repugnant. So, friends, continue in the gospel. Continue in the gospel. You are saved by it. You're being made holy by it. It is that which gives you great standing before God the Father. Don't abandon it. Don't buy into anything that makes much of you and not much of Jesus. Stay true to the gospel. Stay true to the gospel as a parent This is huge. Little children are looking to you to know whether or not they're accepted if they do good and they do bad. I have a three-year-old. I know what it's like to have to forgive someone for doing the same thing over and over. Paxton, don't hit your brothers. Next day, Paxton, don't hit your brothers, right? Every single day. Will he get it? Yes, I pray one day he will. (laughs) For the sake of my urgent care bills. Be a grace, gospel-centered parent. Show your kids that you love them unconditionally, not because of their performance, their academic success, their athletic prowess, but because they're made in the image of God and they're precious and holy in his sight. And you can love them regardless if they're your honor roll A-list superstar or they've got, suffers from some disability 
both are equal in the sight of God and both are deserving of love and both sets of kids need parents who say, I am unconditionally loved and received by my father. And so as your father or mother, I will unconditionally love and receive you. You gotta be a gospel-centered employee or employer, which means what? It means that you go to work every day believing that Jesus is your true boss, not that guy in the office, and so you're gonna work to please and approve, for, work for his approval. It means that you're an excellent, on-time, punctual, rule-abiding, godly employee in the workplace so that what? So that others see your reputation and they know that there's something different about you. You gotta be a gospel-centered spouse. Man, marriage is the cauldron in which the gospel gets worked out, right? Because I thought I was a good guy and then I got married and then I learned otherwise. <laughs> because if there's any weakness in your character or personality, you had better believe that, uh, that marriage will bring it out of you. And if marriage doesn't, then having kids will. And so you've gotta look at the way that you're forgiving your spouse, because you can, I can tell you everything about your understanding of the gospel by how you interact with your spouse. Because they're the person that's closest to you. Every, the byproduct of intimacy, right? Two people become one. What a, the byproduct of intimacy is conflict every single time. And so how you handle your conflict in a godly way is the determining factor for whether or not the relationship will have long-term success. And so if we're growing bitter, if we're growing resentful, if we're unforgiving, it means that we haven't understood the gospel because the gospel says, I've forgiven you of everything and I'm asking you to do the same to the people in your world. Because through the power of Jesus Christ working within us, we can say again and again, I forgive you. Now there's trust issues. That's something of a separate thing that we need to talk about. But when we talk about the gospel centered in the, in the, in the sense of a marriage, it means that you're daily calling to mind the fact that God had saved you graciously, extends forgiveness to you, and now you get the opportunity to do the same. So be, continue in the gospel, friends. The next thing that Paul talks about is suffering. And it's normal that Paul would talk about suffering because in his situation, he's bound up in chains and he's facing his execution. He mentions how Timothy needs to endure suffering well several times in his letter. If you could turn back to 2 Timothy 1, 8, he tells Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner, but to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 2 Timothy 2, 3 Again, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You know that Christianity is a war. You know that you're a soldier in God's army. No soldier goes onto the battlefield expecting not to get shot at, as though it would be some surprise. So don't be surprised when difficulty and bullets start flying your direction. You're in a war, so come prepared. The last thing, one of my favorites, 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So how does somebody endure suffering and persecution well? By recalling the reality of the gospel. He says, I want you to endure in 2 Timothy 1, share in suffering for the gospel, key phrase, by the power of God. What's the power of God? The power of God is what Paul was relying on to know that even if I give up of my very life, that I don't lose anything at all because in reality of what I'm about to experience in glory, the present sufferings of this day and age are not even worthy to be compared. I would gladly give up everything in this world that I may obtain, that I may receive the glory of God in heaven. So there's that. So how do you suffer well? 
Suffering comes to us in all different shapes and sizes, from the cell that multiplied one too many times and now it's cancer, from the unexplained and tragic death of a loved one to just the regular old, we don't have enough money and we're living on spaghetti again. How do we deal with that? May I encourage you, the first thing I want you to do is is recognize, say, say a prayer something like this. Say, God, this sucks. Life is hard, and it's okay to admit that. You can be victorious and suffering at the same time. So admit to God that this is really hard. That's totally okay. God, this is really hard. Help me to reflect well on you in this. Even as I'm being drugged through the mud, help me to make much of you. God, help me not to waste the suffering. Help me to learn that which you want me to learn. And in so doing, when we suffer well for the sake of the gospel, then especially then, we become people whose lives are lived on display that we glorify the goodness of Jesus Christ. Yes, when he's good and he blesses us, but yes, even when he takes away. Last thing is the calling. See, in Paul's world, he recognized that to have this God-infused calling, Timothy was a young man with a destiny, but he was prone to forget it. And so Timothy, or Paul would write to Timothy several times, and he would encourage him in this issue of calling. And I want you to watch what Paul connects Timothy's calling to every time. 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, I want you to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What's the word of truth? 2 Timothy 3 But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What's he doing? He's saying that in here, in fact, specifically the Old Testament, there is wisdom that will allow a person to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. So Timothy, don't abandon this. Timothy, stay true to this. Study to show yourself approved by God in the word of truth. So Bible reading for a lot of us is like what scrapbooking is to moms in the sense that you have this vague suspicion you should be doing more of it and so you feel guilt that you're not. I have a friend of mine, they had five kids in seven years. Right? How many of you have this? They've got like 10,000 photos of the first kid in like three scrapbooks. And by the second time, the second and third kids, they're like, well, we look at them. Yeah, you know. There's no real artifacts. There's nothing there. Why? Well, so, so she was like, I've got five kids. I, I, I'm just, she said, I'm resolving to, to not scrapbook because I just feel guilty when I don't. I don't need that. So she didn't. A lot of us feel guilty because the Bible, for some of us, Usually there's kind of two camps of people. One is kind of the devotional style people, you know, who you, maybe you've got my utmost for his highest or you kind of work through something from Max Lucado and you've, you're usually reading about like a verse or two at a time that's got some kind of nugget in it that's, that's gonna guide you along your way. May I encourage you that the Bible was written to us in books and it's good to study a book, not simply a verse. And 
um, so read an entire book in a day or even in one sitting. And it's not actually that hard. Second Timothy, even just four chapters, the book we're in right now, may take you 10 or 12 minutes to read the entire book, maybe even read it twice. Most of the New Testament letters are like that. Why am I encouraging you to read whole books at a time? Because it's important to get into the world of the author. It's important to kind of let his worldview, his thinking process, inhabit yours. That's something that you don't get if you just open to a certain verse in Psalms and draw out some word for you today. What I want you to do is begin to ask yourself questions like, why did the author write this? What was he trying to communicate to his original hearers? What does that have to do with my life? And as you begin to read whole books at a time and then read them repetitively, um, I read for a season, I was reading Colossians out loud. It took me about 10 minutes, but somehow reading out loud with, to myself created a sense that I began to know this book deeply. So do so, if that's one of the people you are. But some people are just, like, they know they're supposed to read the Bible. They've got, like, 12 at home, but they don't have any really one that they read at all. And then when they go to read the Bible, they're like, ah, they told me to read the Bible again. So, all right, Jeremiah 26, 32, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, disaster is going forth from a great tempest. This is so lame. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like you have no idea what's going on. Well, there are parts of the Bible that are hard to understand, which is why you come to church or maybe you take a class at CBC. But let me offer you a suggestion. One is um, resolve to say pray before you read. Say, God, this is your word. You wrote it. You care a great deal about what it says, and you care a great deal that I understand it. So help me because I need help. And then at, I don't want to sound presumptuous, but let me offer you a simple plan Um, I would avoid any sort of plan that tries to get you a certain number of scriptures in a given year. Like the whole read through the Bible plan is like scrapbooking. It just builds guilt. Like I'm already behind and it's January 2nd, you know. (laughs) So the important thing isn't reading the volume of scripture, although that certainly is important. The important thing is that you actually read in a consistent, we're talking about building a habit, building this into your life. Okay. Um, some of you, you have a coffee routine in the morning. Put this in right after your, you know you're going to drink coffee every morning. So the next thing that you do after, if, if I'm drinking coffee, then I'm reading the Bible. That's what you should say to yourself. If I'm drinking coffee, then I'm reading the Bible in the morning. All right, so here's a simple plan that may help some of you get on board with the whole idea of reading the Bible. The first is spend one chapter a day in the book of Psalms. Why? The book of Psalms is a book of prayers and hymns that communicate how people in years past have communicated with God. Many of you uh, don't know how to pray. You lack a language. Like your most horrifying experience is if you're at somebody else's house for dinner and they invite you to pray, say grace for the meal. You're just like, "Ah, uh, Jesus, bless this meal, amen. You just feel awkward when you have to pray out loud. This is fine. This isn't, everybody starts there. Everybody used to stink at praying. (laughs) What you do is by reading scripture, what are you doing? You're giving yourself a set of vocabulary, uh, uh, words, ideas and concepts that you can then use. As people prayed them centuries ago, now you continue in that same and you pray them. And so when you read the book of Psalms, you're reading in an effort to be able to learn how to pray, in an effort to be able to how to communicate to God more honestly. Say you're suffering. Say you're going through a hard time. So is everybody in the book of Psalms. You'll find some really good friends in there, people who have been through what you've been through, people who have given voice to your hurt. And in that, you can then voice your hurt to God and ask for grace. The next thing you do is then you bump over to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has 31 chapters. If you read one a day, you'll get through it in about a month. 
And Proverbs is just a series of beautiful quips, sayings, that have tremendous practical importance for how you conduct your business, how you handle your finances, how you deal in your relationships, how you raise children, how you pursue wisdom with God. There are certain things that just rock my world. One of my life verses uh, falls over here in Proverbs 28, 13. I was just reading it one day, and this just hit me upside of the head like a shovel. He says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. And I was like, do I want to prosper? I think I do. If I have secret sin in my life, I guess I won't. <sighs> Maybe I need to deal with my secret sin. <laughs> and then here's the beautiful part. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You read that one day, that'll change your life. There's a ton of stuff like that in Proverbs. After Proverbs, you need to go to the Gospels. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four eyewitness accounts about Jesus, and you can never stray far from Jesus. No matter where you're at in your daily Bible plan, I feel like you should always be in the Gospels because you can never get too much of the words or the works of Jesus. So let Jesus and his lifestyle saturate yours. And then after that, head over to Acts, because Acts will give you power for now that you've gone through all of this, what am I supposed to do in the world around me? How am I supposed to live on mission as a disciple of Jesus Christ? And Acts will give you a pretty good blueprint. Has a lot to do with the Holy Spirit and staying true to the gospel. And so you read the book of Acts, that you can get through the book of Acts in less than a month. And then finally, maybe, if you've got one more chapter left, spend it in the pastoral letters, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus. Because all of these letters center on leadership development. And I'll tell you this, everybody is a leader. Everybody has somebody that is looking up to them to make a decision well. And you need help in that regard. And so the, the pastoral letters are all about getting your character and your house and your interior life in order so that you can be an effective leader in today's world. And then after a while, say you spend a month in this plan, you'll have read all of Proverbs, all of Acts, most of the Gospels, some of Psalms, all of the pastoral letters probably four times, and you'll be ahead of the game. So I encourage you, this is just a plan. I didn't come up with it. I'm not married to it, but it's a good place to start. So if you need something, you can go ahead and take it. If it figures out that it doesn't work for you, then just move on to doing something. But the encouragement is, is that as you stay in Scripture, like what Paul told Timothy was, it helps you identify and remain true to your calling, which is live as a gospel-centered, disciple-making person in community for Jesus. Friends, we've been given the book of Second Timothy. So here's what we learned. Uh, here's what we learned today at church. One, um, you got to stay true to the gospel. Don't dilute it. Don't deny it. Don't forsake it. Remain true to the gospel. Let the gospel saturate everything that you do. Your parenting, your marriage, the way that you go to work, everything. The next thing is that you've got to endure suffering well. It's not an if, it's a when. So the question is, how will you respond? By the power of God, endure it well with grace. Lastly, remain true to your calling. Remain true to your calling and use scripture as the guidelines for your life, daily getting from it the food that you need in order to live a life that's glorifying to Jesus Christ. Amen? You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503 503- 266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com.
Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.